Well, we're going to continue our series. Uh, it's kind of an apologetic series, uh, you know, hard to believe. What, why do certain things happen? Today we're going to talk about evil and the existence of evil in the world. One of the things that people talk about is, you know, if God's all-loving and all-knowing and all-powerful, why evil? In fact, this is one of the things that a lot of people point to when they want to disprove God, if you will. And what we're going to look at first in the book of John, John records a story for us. You'll have to uh, bear with me this morning. I was out repairing my shed and killing mold yesterday, so I've got some ramifications with my allergies. So if you can bear with me this morning, we'll work through this. In the book of John, he tells us the story of Lazarus and Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, send someone to Jesus and say, hey, um, Lazarus is dying, and you need to come quickly, you need to heal him. And the Bible says that Jesus intentionally waited a few days and did not immediately go to Lazarus. Well, that's interesting. Here's Lazarus, a great friend. Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, are good friends of Jesus. Why would Jesus not stop what he's doing and go visit Lazarus? Why did he intentionally wait for Lazarus to die before he showed up? Because that's what the Bible tells us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump into the story, and we're going to see some of the comments that the people made to Jesus. I think they'll sound really, really familiar. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 11. If you've got your phone, tablet, if you don't have any of that, it'll be up on the screen for you. In John chapter 11, verse 5, uh, 5 through 8, it says this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And yet you're going back. And so his disciples, like a lot of us, are in self-preservation mode, right? I'm not going to go back there because if you remember right, Jesus, they tried to kill us. And they tried to kill you. Do you not remember this? Like, we don't hang out where people try to kill us. That's just a bad idea, Jesus. And let's go on. Let's go to uh, verse 16. Verse 16 is one of the, I, I think, one of the more comical verses in all of the Bible. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Hey, let's just all go with Jesus because we're all going to die, right? Let's just go back to where everybody was trying to kill us. And so go ahead and purchase your burial plot because we're all going to die. But if Jesus wants to go, we'll go, right? I mean, can you just sense the sarcasm in Thomas's voice? Right? Sarcastic, like, fine, you want to die, we'll go die with you. And, of course, they don't die, but we get to verse 32, and in verse 32, it says this, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How many of us have made some sort of statement like that or have friends or family members that make that some sort of statement like that? God, if you were really good, you wouldn't have let this happen. Jesus, if you were here, 
this wouldn't have happened. Right? If only. You should have, you could have, etc. Well, let's go on. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. Probably one of the most profound verses in all of the Bible. And it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And so they all pretty much say the same thing. Whether it's Mary or Martha or the people that are there weeping. Oh yeah, he could open blind guy's eyes, but he can't heal the sick guy and he had to let him die. Right? They're kind of all in this stage of doubt with Jesus. Like, if you would have just been here, and the Bible actually says that when he raised Lazarus from the dead, now we're, gonna not, we're not going to dive into those verses this morning, but it says that he went to the tomb of Lazarus, and he said, move the stone out of the way. He calls forth Lazarus and says, come out. Now, can you imagine if you're Lazarus? I mean, Lazarus has gone on to paradise. He's there. It's all good. He's in a place that makes our world and all of its beauty look like a ghetto. And he is there, and he's he's talking with Moses and David and and maybe some other relatives, and he's talking, and all of a sudden he hears, Lazarus. Right? And he's like, what? what, what? Lazarus. How would you feel? Like, no, no. Like, you know the voice because it's your best friend's voice, right? And you're like, no, don't call me back there. Like, I like it here way too much. I would not want to. Ca- Lazarus, come out. And then, boom, right? He's back into his body, and he's all wrapped up, and he just comes hopping out, right? And what's Jesus say? Jesus says, get the stuff, unwrap him, get the stuff off of him, right? And there's a whole sermon right there about coming out of your tomb and what binds you, but I won't get into that this morning, maybe some other time, right? So he comes hopping out, and Jesus says, unwrap him. And then the Bible says, from that moment on, those in power began to conspire and figure out how they could kill Jesus. And it says, as if Jesus wasn't enough, and they conspired, and most people read right over, read right over this, And they conspired how they might kill Lazarus. They wanted Jesus and Lazarus knocked off. Why? Because he just came in, a guy that had been dead for days, came in, brought him back out of the grave, and they said, whoa, no, 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 now you're really undermining our authority. We need them both killed. How would you like to be Lazarus, be dead, and then all of a sudden when you come back from the grave and you leave paradise where everything is perfect, you come back and now you got a bounty on your head. Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> Appreciate that, right? But we have two evils here, two evils in this story. First evil is this. The first evil is what philosophy calls natural evil. Death, natural disaster, hurricanes, tornadoes, etc. So you have natural evil, and then you have a second kind of evil, and that is moral evil. Moral evil. That is the plot to murder Jesus and Lazarus, right? It's not natural. They begin to plot how to murder these two guys. That's called moral evil. There's moral evil, 
and natural evil. Now, before we can answer the question why evil exists in our world, we first have to know how do we know what evil even is? If I asked you to tell me something that you view as evil, could you quickly, within like just a few seconds, let me see your hand if it quickly in a few seconds you could tell me what evil is. Let me see your hand. If you know, you could just be like, I mean, you wouldn't even have to go back that far. So, like, if you like history, right, you wouldn't have to go back that far. It used to be like, right, concentration camps, Nazis, right, Hitler. I mean, you don't have to go back that far. Um, murder, rape, etc. right? Uh, one of the things that we work hard uh, to support is A21. It's, a, it's an organization that fights human trafficking, right? And so we give to that and we work with them. And so human trafficking is an evil in our society. It's not a natural evil. It's a moral evil. How do we even know that that's evil? To know what evil is, we must first know what good is. You can't know what evil is unless you know what good is. And I can take someone who doesn't even believe in Jesus, who doesn't even believe in, in God, and they'll look at human trafficking, human trafficking and go, that's evil. Well, how do they know it's evil? Because inherently we know what's good. Right? If we didn't know what was good, evil would be normal. We'd have no way to define evil. Because we wouldn't have any good to look to and say, that's good, that's evil. If it was just evil all the time, we wouldn't know any different, right? Now, if we know what is good and we know what's evil, morally, to know what, is, to know what good is, there must be a moral law that defines good and evil. Now, if there's a moral law, there must be, are you following me? If, if we know what good and evil is, moralistically, we know that, there must be a moral law giver outside that sits outside of humanity. So if we know what morality is, and morality helps us define good and evil, then where did morality come from? Well, morality came from God himself. And so the question when people ask, well, doesn't evil prove God doesn't exist? No. E evil proves that God does exist. The existence of evil does not disprove God, but rather proves his existence because you know the difference between good and evil. How do you know the difference between good and evil? Because there's a moral law. Well, if there's a moral law, there had to be a moral law giver. And so the very fact that evil exists proves that God exists. You guys are getting your degrees this morning. Is that good? You guys with me? You all right? Yes? I got, I got college students up here going, yes. Right? And so the very fact that evil exists proves God's existence. Because you know the difference between good and evil. Because if it was just evil all the time, you wouldn't know what good is. Evil cannot exist. Evil cannot exist apart from good. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, evil is a parasite. It is there only because good is there for it to spoil and confuse. The very reason evil exists is because good exists. Can you have good by itself with no evil? Yes. Every time I sit down and watch a football game with ice cream, I have all good. It's all good, right? 
But then the dog, when there's like 10 seconds left and you're getting ready to throw a Hail Mary, the dog suddenly has to go out. Evil. That's evil. And see, the dog wouldn't have to go out at the beginning of the game or right before kickoff. Right? I have good and I know what good is. And because I know this is good, then that must be evil. Evil could only exist because good exists, but good can exist all by itself. Now, the question gets to be then, if evil is proof that God exists, why couldn't God create us so that we would just never choose evil? Why wouldn't he create humanity so that all we ever did was only choose good? Fair question. But guess what? That means you and I would have to be robots. We would have to see one thing and one thing only and just only do that. Robots. Constantly. This is all we do. Good, 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 good. Right? Look at me at 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. What do we know about love? Love requires choice. If I force you to love me, right? Is that love? If I force you to love me, are you really going to love me? Love requires choice. And so if God loves us, he has to give us choices. And if he's going to give us good choice, then guess what else he has to give us? He has to allow for the opportunity. does not mean he created evil. It simply means he allows the opportunity to exist because he loves us and he wants to give us a choice. And we choose. Love cannot be programmed. It requires a choice. Right? Why do you think every time a guy does one of these numbers, right? Okay, it's 21st century. Sometimes, and, and when women do this, Right? Why do you think they're so nervous? Because love requires a choice. And you could wreck the whole thing by saying no. Right? And then you're just like, ah. Right? It's one of the biggest risk, biggest reward moments in our in our lives. Love is a choice. And so because love is a choice and because God himself is love, it requires that he give us a choice. Let me ask you something. Why do you give your kid choices? Right? Why do you give your kids choices? Well, sometimes we don't give them choices, right? But then sometimes we give them choices. Like chores aren't a choice. You have to do your chores, right? You have to clean your room and so on. But... Why do you give your kids a choice? Because you love them and you want them to learn. If I go to my son and I say, son, you have a choice, vegetables or ice cream. Some of you are like, how is that even a choice? Like, why is that even a choice? That's not a choice, right? Vegetables or ice cream, celery, or cookies and cream, right? And I know inherently as his father what he's going to choose. Now, just because I know what he's going to choose, does that mean he has to choose it? No. 
I love him, I'm going to give him a choice. But what's he going to choose? Almost 99.9% .9 of the time, he's going to choose the ice cream, right? Even if the ice cream is melted and it's ice cream soup, he's going to choose the ice cream, right? God does it all the time. He says, because I love you, I'm giving you a choice. You can take the ice cream, and it'll clog your arteries and rot your teeth and do all the other stuff. But when it's in your mouth, it tastes really good. But once it gets past your mouth, it's no bueno for you, right? Or you can eat the celery, and yeah, it doesn't taste great in your mouth, but it's great for your body. In fact, when you eat celery, it's negative calories. So all of you on Weight Watchers, you should eat celery. That was just pro bono. That wasn't in my notes, right? But celery is actually negative calories, and it's good for your body. So what should you choose? Love gives choices. And yet we perpetually choose ice cream because initially it tastes better. But the Bible says that sin, though it tastes sweet like honey at first, in the end it bites bitter and nasty and damaging. He says when you first partake of sin and things you shouldn't, it, it feels great. It's feel, everything's great. But once sin has played its role in your life, it's destructive. Sin's like ice cream. Now, I just ruined somebody's favorite snack this morning. I apologize for that. But that's what, I'm just, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, right? So, God in Genesis chapter 3 tells Adam and Eve, I love you, and because I love you, and I want you to love me in return, I have to give you a choice. Because love is not forced, right? And so because I love you and I want to give you an option to love me in return, I must provide those options. I must, tree of good and evil, tree of sin. You take your pick. And what do we pick? And what do we perpetually pick? What do we perpetually pick all the time? We take what feels good at the moment. And then what happens? Well, that feeling goes away, so then we have to chase something else that makes us feel good. And then we have to chase something else that makes us feel good. And chase something else that makes us feel good. Rather than coming over to God's side and just living healthy and living spiritually healthy and feeling satisfied in our lives and content in our lives, we perpetually chase things that we think we want that will eventually make us happy. But then once we get them, after a while, they no longer make us happy, so we have to go chase something else. And God says, I love you, and I want you to love me in return, so I must give you a choice. Right? God's plan for humanity had the potential for evil, but the actual evil itself came, came about as a result of mankind who directed their will away from God's will. Norman Geisler, a Christian apologist, says this. He says, whereas God created the fact of freedom, humans performed the acts of freedom. God made evil possible. The creatures make it actual. God says, yeah, you have the potential for evil, but I'd rather you not choose that. But what do we do? Out of our own desires, our own lusts, and our own wants and needs, we choose evil because at the moment it feels good. God goes, I gave you that potential, but I want you to choose evil. This, in Mark chapter 7, verse 20 through 23, Jesus says this. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Now, why did he say this? Well, he said this because the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
the religious leaders were looking at his disciples and saying, they don't even wash their hands before they eat. Parents. Okay. Uh, if you're a kid here this morning, do not use this against your parents. Right? But the Pharisees are saying, they're defiling their bodies because they don't wash their hands and they're going to put something dirty in their mouth and it's going to get in their system and make them sick. And this is Jesus' response. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, not what goes in. What comes out is what defiles. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Where does evil come from? It comes from inside of us. It's there. He says all of this stuff, it comes from in, with, within you. Evil comes from humanity, not from God. Ouch. You ever look in the mirror and not like what you see? I do. Right? And guess what? We just looked in the mirror. Jesus does that all the time. Man, when you read the words of Jesus, it's like we're looking into a mirror. You know, I, I tell people all the time, they say, well, why should I read my Bible? I say, because it'll read you back. The Bible reads you. And when you read it, you're like, hmm. But the beauty of it is, now you know. And you have the opportunity to move forward. <sighs> but we don't want evil. And yet it's within us. We want to move forward, but it's inside of us. We want to move forward with God in the direction God wants us to go, and yet inside of us is this thing that pulls us a different direction. I'll give you an analogy. It's like <clears throat> our, us and God, it's like, it's like an owner walking their dog, and they've got the dog on the leash, and they're walking, right? And both the owner and the dog want to move forward. But the dog decides that he... He sees a post and he decides that maybe he wants to go to the right and the owner wants to go around to the left. For whatever reason, the owner decides that going to the left of the post is better than going to the right of the post. Are you with me? Anybody ever had this experience? Yes. Right? And so you go this way and the dog goes that way around the post. Now, you know as an owner... That dog needs to come to this side of the post, but yet the dog wants to move forward. You want to move forward. The dog wants to move forward, but the post is in the way. Evil is in the way. And God has control of the reins. And so what do you do? You pull back on the dog. You're like, hey, mm -mm, Fido, no, we're not going this way. We can't go to the right of the post. We need to go this way. Do both want to move forward? Yes. But what happens Dogs are dogs, right? And they just see what they see and they go and they keep pushing. And he keeps, you try to pull him back to come around and he keeps trying to pull forward. The owner, you empathize with the dog. You're like, yes, I want to go that direction too, but we have to go this way around it. And the dog says, no, I want to go this way, right? Here's what theologians will say. Theologians will say this. The dog's desire to go to the right of the post is sin. When the owner says we should be going this way. Both want to move forward, but the dog wants to move forward in their way and what they think is best. And God says, no, no, I need you to move this way forward. And what happens? The dog starts to pull on the collar, doesn't it? The dog starts to like push and pull and push and pull. 
And now all of a sudden, as the owner, I can empathize with your desire to go forward, but I cannot empathize with your desire to fight against the collar on your neck. Why? Because that's the very thing that I'm trying to use to direct you, and yet you're fighting against it. Right? So, in fact, the more you desire to go forward and the more the dog tries to push forward, the less empathy I have for your desire to fight against the collar and the more frustrated I get. And yet I still want to go forward with you. And I think that's sometimes our relationship with God. I want to go forward. I want to go this way. And God says, I want you to go that way too, but I can't have you go that route that way. And the more we fight against God, the less God empathizes with us in the fact that we try to fight him. He's like, yes, let's all go forward together, but let's not go that way. In fact, C.S. Lewis says this in regards to that analogy. He says, uh, speaking for God, he says, in, the fa- in fact, the more I sympathize with your real wish, that is the wish to get, uh, to get on, the less I can sympathize with your resistance to the caller. For I see that this is actually rendering the attainment of your real wish impossible. Your real wish is to move forward, but you're fighting the collar. You guys with me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump off of that. Some of you are with me, some, some of you aren't. But I think, you, I think for the most part, you see the big picture. We try to fight God and yet still go God's direction. That, it doesn't make sense. So why does then God allow certain things? Let's take, for example, as I, I'll make it personal. Why did God allow my cousin at the age of 19 or age 20 get hit in a head-on collision on 69 and die at the age of 20 on her way back from Indianapolis one night? Living for God, going to seminary to be a missionary, head-on, she's going northbound, and there's a car without its lights on going southbound on 69. Some of you might remember it. It was all over the news. And she was hit head on. Why did God allow that to happen? Why does God allow those specific instances to happen? And I'm going to be honest. I don't know. I can't tell you why a specific incident happens. But I can tell you this. And let me try to, if, if God's all powerful, all knowing, etc. Why does he allow specific incidences like that to happen? Well, I think it goes something like this. <clears throat> when God created the earth, he put us in charge. He said, humanity, you're in charge of the planet. What did we do? We took our authority. We yielded it over to Satan. We said, okay, we'll eat this, whatever that fruit was, whatever. We'll eat it. We'll partake of it. And... We yielded our authority to Satan. Okay? God says, I put you in charge. You decide what to do with your authority. I love you. I'm giving you choices. Let's say you own an apartment complex. Okay? You own an apartment complex, and you've done everything in your power as the owner to keep your residents safe. You've put walls up. They have to use a security code to get into the parking lot. You have security on the premises 24-7, you do everything that you can to keep your renters in your apartment complex safe. 
right? You have rules. They have to abide by the rules. You keep a lifeguard on duty at the pool and security there and all of this stuff you do. And yet a murder happens in your apartment complex. Why? Because as the owner of the apartment complex, you want to do your best to allow your renters to live autonomously and to live independent of you as the landlord breathing down their neck. Would you have been there to stop it? Yeah. But you also want them to have the freedom to come and go as they please, and you've put things in place to keep them safe. But they choose then to murder somebody in their apartment anyway. That's exactly what we have. God says, humanity, I've put you in charge of this apartment complex called Earth. And one day I'm going to come back and I'm going to set everything right. But until then, you're in charge. And he sent Jesus down to point the direction and the way to go and to redeem us. He says, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a tenant in the apartment complex to show everybody how they should live. And then he's going he's to die for humanity and then come back to life. And he's done that for us, but we choose even then to ignore. Even at that point, we choose to ignore. And he says, okay, that's, you continue to ignore. One day I will come back and I will rule the planet. In what is known as, not as a democracy, not as communism or socialism, it's known as a theocracy. Theo, Latin, God, ocracy, rule, God rules the planet, right? Here's the other thing about evil. Evil always provides another option, right? So if there's evil in the world and he sends Jesus in to point away to get away from evil, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. He says, yes, everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and walked away from God. He goes, but I'm providing a way out. That's the, that is the beauty of evil, that there is another option. There is a silver lining there that if you choose to accept it, there's hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. God never allows evil without redemption. So let's go back to my cousin who, who died. Living for God, going to seminary to be a missionary, and why would you allow her to die when she's living right and doing right? Yet the car behind her that would have gotten hit was a nurse who was struggling with her atheism and through the evil came to know Christ. But had she been hit head on, she would not have gone to heaven. Think about that. And she shows up at my uncle's church and gives her life to Christ at my uncle's church. Now why? I'm not trying to make sense of this. But there's always a redemptive story in evil. Had that nurse been hit head on, she would not have made it to heaven. My cousin, as Oswald Chambers says, if you're a Christian, there is no such thing as goodbye. It's just, I'll see you again. I'll see you later. It's true. I'll see my cousin again. I'm not worried about that. But I would have never seen that nurse who was battling with 
does God exist or not? There is always redemption in evil. God will not allow evil without a form of redemption to make things right. The question is, do we take advantage of it? Right? Matthew 5.45, Jesus says to his followers, In that way you will be acting as true sons of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust too. He says, the sun is going to shine on those who are evil and those who are good. It's going to rain on those that are evil and it's going to rain on those that are good. He says, you make the decision. How are you going to love? Are you going to love God and resist evil? Or are you going to love evil and want to do things your way and do, and do things rightly? I do things rightly or do things your way because it makes me feel good and, and I keep chasing my feelings. I keep chasing things that want to make me feel good. But let me say this to anybody in here today that's struggling, that's lost a loved one. When I talk about my cousin, God showed me this verse and it was, it was huge in that moment in those days and weeks following. Psalm 116 verse 15, as we wrap this up, says this, precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. Other translations essentially say, God feels your pain when you lose a loved one. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So when you're at the funeral and you're crying for the loss of a loved one, if Jesus wept over Lazarus because he lost one of his best friends, I want you to know today that what you've suffered through and what you've gone through, I want you to know that God has felt the same pain. The word precious means cherish, to treasure, to experience. And so that when you're feeling that loss and that pain, God's feeling it too. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of it. The death does not go unnoticed. And when it says saints, it simply means the redeemed, those that have those that have followed Christ and chosen to follow Christ. In John 15, 13, think about this. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. Jesus was talking about himself and what he was about ready to do. The Bible also tells us that God is love. And so it's possible It's just possible, and I want to give you this, send you home with this, and I want you to think about this. It is possible that since God is love, and the greatest act of love is to sacrifice your own life, that without Adam and Eve's sin, we could have never known the greatest love. Though all this evil exists in the world, we would have never known the greatest love if we were autonomous robots who only do good. We would never fully experience God's love of his death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without evil, we would have never experienced that. We would never know what that is. That would have never happened. And yet God chose, because he loves us so much, he chose to create us anyway. Think about that. Without the sin of Adam and Eve, we would have never been able to experience the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Why? Because the greatest act of love is to sacrifice your life for somebody. This is what I'm saying, that even though evil exists and stems from the heart of man, God says, I will not allow evil to exist without a way to combat it. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the love of Jesus that can revolutionize and change your life, I want to invite you to experience the love of Jesus this morning as we get ready to stand and we get ready to close here in song. I'm going to ask that Steve and Bonnie Jack come down on this side and I'm going to ask that Aaron and my wife Lynn come down on this side and they're going to pray with you. And if you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to give you two options this morning. You may fill out a blue card and say that you want to accept Christ. Put it in the comment box and be anonymous and I'll just call you this week and you and I can just have a a discussion. Or you can come forward and they'll pray with you. Make that bold declaration of faith. Say, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I don't care what anybody, I don't care who's staring at me. I don't care. I want to follow Jesus. If that's you this morning, I want you to make your way forward as we get ready to stand up and sing. If you need prayer for anything else as we close out in song, I want you to come forward. If it's prayer for a loved one, uh, whatever it might be, would you stand this morning?